I'm your host, Chase Williams, and this is Witty Banter. To my right is my best friend, partner in crime, Hunter Dorsett. Hey, thanks. And to my left is Dr. Professor Badass, Ahmed Siddiqui. <laughs> Thank you. That's quite an introduction. Yeah, is, <laughs> Dr. Professor Badass. So, real quick, you might have noticed already, we have another guest on the show. Mm-hmm. We're getting a laundry list of guests at this point. This is point. like the season of guests. So, Ahmed, why don't you introduce yourself... Just give the audience a little bit about you so they know who you are. Sure thing. Well, Chase was uh, in a class of mine, and that's how we met. So I'm a grad <laughs> student at the University of Texas, and uh, I study political philosophy, and uh, happy to be here. Yeah, man, I'm excited. So basically, like, what prefaced this whole episode was Hunter and I just get deadlocked in these philosophical talks, right? Yes, we do. And <laughs> I was just thinking, like... After being in your discussion sections and all that, I was like, we need to get this guy on here and just hash stuff out and get to the bottom of things. And I guarantee that me and him are not using terms right, A, <laughs> B, are not following like the proper logic paths or whatever, and C, who knows. So after this, I, I'm planning on the skies opening up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like all you know. understanding being grasped. We, we will we will aim for that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> our sights high. Yeah. So if you're familiar with witty banter, you you typically come to expect a beer review and some news segments, but that's not how we're going to do it today. We're going to do another episode of deep cuts. Oh yeah. Um, we've actually done a few of those now, so you might know about deep cuts. What it is basically is each one of us is going to bring a subject to talk about to the table. We'll talk about it, and when we're done, we'll get out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you guys ready? Uh, I'm ready. That sounds good. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and open it up because I think my question is going to be like a good foundation. But it's also something that uh, after reading Atlas Shrugged especially, it's it's something that she takes for granted that I want to bring up. And so my question is, is there such thing as an objective good and evil? Mm. And if there is, how do we define it? I think that's a great question to start off with. Great. That, that is, uh, it's a big one. This is the deepest of cuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is about. Now, here's, here's something I've always noticed, right? And even reading just briefly the philosophy that we had in our class is that every single one of these philosophers would sort of start out at a certain point, and that point was typically um, the state of nature. And it was, sure. and it was like, hmm. how do human beings act in a state of nature and and basically can you discern if that is right or wrong what they do right mm-hmm. um do you think that's like a can be almost a fault now like constrictive in your because in a lot of ways i feel like it's it's easy to be well in nature we would seek like survival and we'll seek this right. But realistically, like, we don't live in a state of nature anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and to discount, like, society or to, like, not let that be a part of a picture, I feel like can definitely cause some pitfalls. Sure. And and the state of nature itself is an idea that emerges with certain modern philosophers, you know, Mm. and this, this itself was a big departure from the way things were being done beforehand. So somebody like Aristotle believes human beings are, by nature, a political animal. So Mm -hmm. for him, it doesn't make sense to talk about man in a state of nature as if he were existing by himself and he didn't have a family and he didn't have friends, right? Mm -hmm. But then it it takes people like Thomas Hobbes to say, no, we're going to strip all of that away because, you know, I think that man really at his core... Is, is individual and solitary. So mm. I, I agree with you. I mean, that, that's a big assumption to make, you know, and I, I think it's, it's fair to say that if you really want to get at 
the full human being, you might have to view him in light of his place in a social context, right? Right. And I think it also kind of, I, I feel like there are instances in nature that like aren't, you know, it's hard to, it would be hard to put like a judgment on like what animals and stuff do. But like sometimes you'll see stuff that like animals would do that like humans would be like, nope, I don't think that's right. You know, <laughs> right? like yeah. there's cannibalism that happens in nature and it's not like we, you know, scoff at that. But if it happens in a human sense, it's like horrible. It's the worst thing. So, well, yeah. so the biggest like discernible trait here, and I'm going to reference Ayn Rand because that's what I've read the most recently and how what she how she broke it down was basically so she accepts the state of nature much like um, Hobbes would right now to her what different like what divides human beings from animals is the fact that you have a choice to survive or not like Hmm. animals have instinct and they are going to act in their survival no matter what like Mm -hmm. an animal cannot choose to not eat and, and a plant cannot choose to not grow and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas human beings can make that choice. Mm. Like they can make decisions that would lead to their death. Correct. Right. And so this is where her big, like her polarity comes mm. is that in a state of nature, a man um, uses his mind to reason out what is best for their survival and whatever they do, and so then every action can be boiled down to, in some degree, an action for survival, which would be life, or an action for non-survival, which would be death. Hmm. Now, this is a question, since I haven't read as much of her. You know, Does that mean that um, survival really is the ultimate end, as far as she's concerned? Is that what we're aiming for? I think for her, and like she's also extremely Kantian. Okay. Um, in fact, will you go ahead and sort of outline what that means for people who wouldn't know, like yeah. uh, his his basic principles and what he brought to the table? I suppose. Well, it, it seems that I mean, in some ways she is, and in some ways I, I think she was uh, a bit of an opponent of of his, you know. And I and I don't understand either thinker well enough to say completely what that is. But I, I think the similarity, at least, is that Kant has something of a of a libertarian kind of streak in him, you know. Um, or at least he anticipates what would later be called libertarianism and that he thinks that people need to be left free to make moral decisions on their own and that once you impose something on them or you start to coerce them, you're just uh, infringing on their sovereignty as a moral agent. And, right. and that sort of defeats the point. And I think Ayn Rand would find a lot to agree with in that. It, it, mm. It's definitely how it is. She she holds the view that like human beings are um, ends in and of themselves, right. and never a means to an end. And that's very Kantian. Exactly, yeah. and that's what she like really builds off of. And now, so when it comes to the ultimate goal, in a way, yes, for her, it's your ultimate goal is is life, right? And since we said survival is life. Um, and what like rewards you for doing actions that bring you more life is joy and pleasure. And yeah. so like by seeking achievement and by seeking like things that are helping you not really survive, but like, and for her, it's like achievement and like self-fulfillment. That's what's bringing you joy and your own joy is like, is what should be, what the ultimate goal should be. Yeah. Now that brings up an important kind of difficulty though, because if we are distinct from animals, not just in the sense that we can choose uh, not to survive, but also in the sense that we might have different goals that we're aiming at other than mere survival, right? Something like joy, which is not just dependent on survival. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you could say you have to be alive to experience joy, 
but the course of action that maximizes your survival might not be the happiest way of life. Yeah, I even think just like if you're about to die and like if you have to chew off an arm, that's definitely not giving you joy, but it's giving you life. Right, that's right. But I think kind of relaying back to Kant at that point where Kant was super into this uh, sense of duty, that's another thing where Ayn Rand comes from. That kind of escapes me. I don't really even understand. Now, this would be a difference between the two, isn't it? That that Kant believes that you have a moral obligation, um, you know, to, to, to aid others, to, to act as a rational person, which means that you have a duty to help other people, right? And, and that which starts Ayn to go not, yeah. quite against Ayn Rand. Right? Well, like, for her, if everything you should be doing should be basically honest. Like, okay. there's characters in her book that are definitely acting for what looks like the benefit of the collective, what is actually benefiting them. And I I really do think that she falls in line with this sense of duty pretty, like pretty right on the mark Okay, where it's like there are shortcuts out there, but by taking them, you are, you're cheating basically. And that's, you you know that kind of sense of like you can't really live live with yourself is going to strike against your overall right. happiness and pleasure right you know so would she ever be okay with a certain course of action where somebody gave up their life um for the sake of i don't know protecting other people or something like that what about that those really high stakes kind of okay well she has some moments like that um in fact, she has a moment where one of the characters who has created this new form of metal, right? Right. And is that his, Reardon? Is that what Reardon metal? That's there you right. go. Yeah. Nice. With his, with his. I haven't even read that book. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, why, that's why we got you on the show. Yeah. Bringing the thunder. So he he creates this thing, and you know it's his and all that, but he ultimately sacrifice. He gives it away to the government so that um, the woman he loves won't be like, we'll say like mentally tortured. I mean, there's a lot of circumstances, but won't have to go through like a big hullabaloo, mm-hmm. all the rigmarole. Okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah. <laughs> how she justifies it is that, like, when you love somebody, you're essentially extending yourself into them. Right. And that, you know, love comes from you. In a lot of, in a lot of ways, you know, even, even when you talk to people, and this is going to sound like a stretch, about, like, dating. Right. And they say, like, don't seek anybody until you, like, are comfortable in love with yourself. In a way, that's also how she is. Uh, for like love, you love somebody because they hold the exact system of like values as you do, and mm-hmm. because of that, you love them as you would love yourself. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he. There is some moments, or there are some moments in there where it's straight up like it looks like self-sacrifice, right. but the motive, like the intent, is always um, selfish. Right. Hmm. And I think that's okay. And, you know, in my own personal view is that you cannot get rid of ego. Like there, you cannot separate yourself from the self. Yeah. So it could be the case that, um, there is no such thing as a true sacrifice in the sense that you're always doing the apparently sacrificial action for the sake of something that you care about. Yeah. But even Mm. then, you know, there were some characters who did act in a, you know, they were sacrificing and some of them truly either A, believed that that's what they should be doing or B, didn't really know why they were doing it. But right. that's when Ayn Rand would, would equate that to um, acts of non-survival, right? which in her mind is evil. Right. And so then the reason that these people had these acts of non-survival was because someone else's will was imparted onto them. Like they accepted somebody else's reasoning. Right. And to her, that's also like a complete no-no. 
Like nothing comes above your reasoning. Like right. Your mind is the last and final judgment. Right. Now, I mean, yeah, so that's, I mean, that, that's a pretty uh, fascinating way to look at it. So, I mean, there, there are these cases in which one person dying or, you know, giving up something important, whether it be their life or something else, for another person that they love because their values are the same or at mm-hmm. least very similar, that's uh, a justifiable and even a rational kind of action, right? Right, I um, suppose. But in those cases where you've allowed your mind to get confused by other people who are imposing their ideas on you, mm-hmm. that's, that's just non-survival. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's what she boils it down to. And there's, there's also a pivotal scene, which is a little ironic, too, because you get that scenario of, like, if you had, a, like, two trains or a train and two tracks. Oh, it's the train question. The train <laughs> question, right? Where, what is it, on one side of the track? You, you set it up. My understanding of this question is that usually, you've, you know, you've got the train and you can direct it, choose to redirect it onto another set of tracks. If, it, if you keep it where it is, it, you know, there might be five people uh, who for whatever reason are playing on the railroad track and, you know, they're about to get run over and you can choose to redirect it, but there's one guy playing on the other end, you know, so somebody's going to die no matter what you do. Right. So with her scenario, she has a worker, okay? And there's, it's not exactly the same scenario, but what it boils down to is he can either send this train out and it will definitely explode and kill like 100 people. Or if he doesn't, he will force his family into starvation and death. And so what he picks... That's, that's rough. Yeah, that's, that's pretty intense. It's rough. What he picks, though, and what I think the, the lesson that she is trying to tell, uh, she, he chooses to let the 100 people die rather than like his small family. Okay. And the reason is, is because his family is what... Get, like, he has given meaning to his family. Like, his fa- like, he loves his family, and he would rather... Like, he ends up thinking to himself, literally, he's like, I mean, why, like, why would I do that? It's just a word. It's just lives. Like to him, those people don't have meaning because he isn't a part of them, blah, 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 and he would rather mm-hmm. save his family. Right. And I think that was a pretty pivotal moment in the book, for me at least, to her pretty much saying like, you got to keep it in the realm of you know, yourself in a way, and I don't know. Like it's, it's okay if you do what's best for you, even if it's not what's best for others, Yeah. basically. I mean. Because, I mean, it, it's, it sounds really bad to say this, but those lives are basically meaningless because you don't know them and, but you do know and love your family and, and the yep. love that you feel for your family should be stronger than like a, a tick mark or a number, you know? But don't you feel like that clashes to some extent? I mean, if everybody has that view, then you're basically discounting everybody else's value that they're placing on other people. Like, what do you mean? Like what we're good. Like just because like, if if everybody had that decision to make and everybody chose just their family, then ultimately much more like there would probably be no one left basically. You know what I mean? Because you are discounting the value that the people that you've never met, you're basically saying that since I haven't put value on them, my existence doesn't account for that uh, value or whatever it is you want to put on mm-hmm. those people. But you're kind of discounting the fact that like everybody has people that are putting value on their lives, you know. Right. And so, even if even if those hundred people aren't like your people, they're other people's people. 
for sure. And and we, we could even push it a little bit further. I mean, what about those people who don't have a family network of anybody to care about them? I mean, it, it strikes us as a little bit weird to say that that homeless guy on the street who nobody knows mm-hmm. has no value for me, you know? Yeah. So, we, yeah. you know, I mean, but, it, but at the same time, you know, you do care about your family. You do care about the people who are close to you most of all. Yeah. But when we think about the implications of it, it starts getting dark really quickly. Yeah. Right? It certainly does. And, you know, that I think it's perfectly okay to leave that up to interpretation to say, did he make the right decision? You know, and for, for her, it would be yes, because you have to consider yourself first above all, you know, you're the last, you're the last word on it. But yeah, it, it's, it's, even though it's easy to like say that in words and writing, like there's still that gut feeling of almost like guilt that if you were to be in that situation and let that happen, like how you would actually feel. And I think guilt is a weird and finicky thing, you know? Sure. And I don't know like where, when we read Aquinas, who said that like guilt was the voice of God telling you that you've done something wrong, essentially. Yeah. For him, that's, that's, you know, evidence that we, we have this conscience, you know, the, for him, the Latin word is syndericis. We've got this syndericis. So therefore, you know, that you can hear the voice of God telling you when you're about to do something wrong or you yeah. have done something wrong. And I like that idea because there's times when like, I feel guilty and I can't think of a rational reason why. And I don't know if it's because maybe it came from like some subconscious development I had in my childhood that's put yeah. it there, or if it's something that's sort of like inherent in all of us. You know? But I feel like there's a, there's sometimes just like a complexity that arises in situations that like you haven't been confronted with and it might not necessarily be guilt, but it's just like unease about the fact that you don't really know, like you've never really processed. It was like the time when I went out and, um, I had a group of people that were asking if if I wanted to join them to go to a gay bar. Right. And I, I just wasn't really... guilty. Well, yeah. Deeply guilty. I wasn't really comfortable doing it. And I was like, I would rather just like be with the people that I know here and not do that because I would just feel uncomfortable. It's not that I have homophobia or anything like that. I just... It's not really what I want to do. But then later on, that whole night, I was like, God, man, I'm like am I a dick for doing that? You know, like, and, and to right, this day, right. I still don't know if like, if I really was or if I'm not. And it's not that I, I don't know if it's actual guilt, but it is a sense of just like, ah, geez, I, I don't really know if there is a right or wrong almost. It's just unease yeah. about it. Well, so, I mean, go ahead. Jesse. Well, I was just thinking, you know, we, we started off, you know, you were asking the question about the possibility good, of objective yeah, good exactly. and evil, right? And the way we're describing what Ayn Rand was saying now, um, it's interesting because we're saying that your mind is, is the ultimate arbiter. Mm-hmm. You're the individual mind and that, and that nobody should be allowed to impose on that. And in a way that we're drawing an objective line there and saying that what my mind decides is right, is, is right. Mm-hmm. But in a way, isn't that really subjective too? Because now we're saying that it's, it's up to the individual mind, right? Well, see, and I think that's where the question gets to. Like whether or not, I, I mean, with, with this assumption of how she views good and evil, at least like we have something to go off of, right? Now... Does, is it possible to like that no such code exists? You know, I mean, to be completely honest, I really want to explore the question when we when we sat down in class for the first time and Pangle said, like, look, if you're a relativist, you have no reason being in this class because we can't have a discussion. Right. 
and you know, when he first said it, I took it as law. I was like, this guy is a professor and he's super smart and he knows how he talks. Like, okay, relativism is crap. That's right. You just write it down. Yeah. But then again, <laughs> yeah, you just write it down. But then again, like how, how can you be sure that there are such things as like absolutes? And, and that's, that's her biggest, that was her biggest thesis is that there are like, just by the very fact that right. reality exists, there is an absolute, but go like, I don't really have many questions to play like devil devil's advocate and to argue with her. I sure. more can just pose the question because I still, I still don't like diving headfirst and just accepting it without just because I read it, you know, but at the same time, like it deeply saddens me that there might not be mm-hmm. a standard of sure. Of course. Know, to yeah. go off and of. I think that's been like my biggest things is that I, I struggle and, and continue to fail in grasping the idea of absolutes. Right. Um, and, and I don't really know where to go from there. Yeah. And I, I would just, I would start by saying, you know, relativism, you know, it's this, it's, it's not easy at all to dismiss. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah, because it's, yeah, it's it, a strong argument. Yeah. And, um, and, and not only that, but it's sort of increasingly common, even though not many people will identify themselves as relativists. Mm-hmm. I think if you just start talking to people, very quickly, you'll hear them say something like, well, look, I mean, how can you really know? There's yes. no, I mean, how, how can, there's no standard of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. This is just something that people will say over and over again. So it's, it's deeply in us, right? It's, I mean, brand, yeah. it's yeah. in textbooks and stuff now. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, and it is just like, it's a write-off. It's That's not right. even talked about. It's just yeah, like, from the other direction. Exactly. We just assume it. And, mm-hmm. and I think part of the reason that Professor Pangle starts off the class with that, with that strong kind of anti-relativistic statement, it is because he believes it to be true after having thought about it for a long time. But all also, I think he wants to counter exactly that kind of influence. Mm-hmm. You know, he knows that most of the students are going to be coming into this class either subconsciously or consciously with this thought in mind. Mm-hmm. And he yeah. wants to try to combat it. I mean, it certainly woke me up, you know, yeah. because I remember being in like just a intro to like, vert, I don't even know what it was called, ethics. Yeah. And that was just one of the theories out there. And when right. you read it, you're like, that sounds good. It makes yeah. sense. And, you know, I can get down with that. Yeah. But I think the implications of it is what truly scares me. Mm, um, sure. The fact that like literally nothing you do is, is good or, or bad or, bad. or evil, yeah. Yeah. you know? I think that's what kind of <laughs> depressed Chase a little bit whenever he talked to me a lot <laughs> is um, because whenever I was going through, I mean, we would go through all these different like uh, functions of thought and, yeah. like, and like try and set ourselves up in scenarios to understand things. And my natural understandings and logic worked that like there was no absolutes. But then at the same time, like, I couldn't suppress my own moral codes that I had built up from, you know, like society around me and just like the general understandings and logic that I had. Right. And so like Chase kept wanting to put me as like, you are a relativist because you think these things, but I'm like, but I also have like ideas and codes that I follow that are my own. This is really common. I think people, if if you just sort of start asking them these questions, they'll, they'll quickly kind of retreat to the relativist position because it's a comfortable one where you don't have to plant your flag anywhere. You can just say, I'm not making any absolute claims. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you really push them, that is an incredibly hard thesis to stick to because most anybody that you talk to, they don't actually think that good and evil are the same or are meaningless. I mean, we, they have beliefs about what is right and what's wrong, and those are strong beliefs. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, there's even, like, really twisted scenarios that I won't get into, like, super detail, but, you know, even when we watched True Detective, have you seen that show? I've heard yeah. of it. I haven't watched it yet. Well, so. there, there's a scene where they have on videotape 
what one of the serial killers was doing um, to a victim. Right? Yeah. You don't mm-hmm. get to see the scene, but... Like for you pur- on purpose, you don't see yeah, it. Yeah, you don't see right, what happened, right. but they show a couple people, and every time they do, those people lose it. Right. They freak out. Right. They're screaming, like, turn this off. Why are you making me watch that? And to me, it's moments like that where you could show that to probably anybody, yeah. and that deep gut, inherent, like, disgust... Yeah. I, to me, that kind of points to at least some sort of absolute like standard. But then know? the same argument exists as like the person who made it. Well, what about the person who made the video? Yeah, you know, like that person doesn't get the disgust from it. So, fact, so that let's start to talk about from that. you know what would it mean for there to be a standard, right? Because if if you know this guy did it, right? So clearly he didn't think it was it was all that bad. He figured <laughs> this was the right thing for yeah. him to do, you know. Um, but I think. I think the one way that you can really, or at least one way that I find helpful in starting to get at this question is to think about whether there is a standard of human health. And I mean health in a kind of holistic sense, not just my physical well-being, right? Mm -hmm. But is there a kind of person that we can imagine or even point to and think to ourselves, that person is just healthy. And that's the kind of person I would like to be. Yeah, Yeah. and they're, they're happy and they're flourishing. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and can we look at the serial killer and think that about him? Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe there's something sick and twisted. Cause that's, I mean, that's how I always react to the other side of the coin of saying, well, you know, well he did it mm-hmm. and he thought it was good. And in my mind, I'm like, he was sick, you know, like yeah. he didn't know what he's doing or he was breaking the code. Like just mm-hmm. because there's a code there doesn't mean that people are going to follow it. But what it does mean is that when they break it, we can um, objectively say that that is wrong or evil. Right. You know? Or that there might be some sort of consequences, maybe even natural consequences. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, and, I, and I think there's something to this. I, it's also helpful, I think, to bracket for a moment to put aside the idea of, of, a, of a complete sociopath, because that does really complicate the question. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's something that exists. <laughs> yeah. And it's something to bring in at one point, but even if, if just to start, we sort of put that to the side and say, what about people who, who sort of share, um, you know, more or less, uh, similar realities, similar realities. Right. And that accounts for almost everyone. Right. Can we make some meaningful progress about, about what's, what's good and what's, what's not good? And I think you can actually get quite far just by talking about it. And again, my, my way into it would be these sort of standards of health. You know, there, there's a kind of way of life that seems to be good for a human being, that seems to lead to happiness. And that holds true for so many people. And if that's the case, that would start to give you a real standard according to which you could start to judge behavior. Mm-hmm. And it would be relatively easy to say something like the life of a drug addict. Mm-hmm. It's just problematic. And it's not even about, we might have to replace some of our terminology. Maybe it's not good and evil at this point, right? It's just, that's just a bad life. Just right and wrong almost. Like yeah. Or just unhel- an unhealthy, unhealthy, you unhealthy. know, just, just not happy. You know, and if we can start saying that that kind of life is, there's something sick about it. And even, even the addict in, in his moment of clarity would, would realize, and I, I think this is often the case, I think addicts in those moments of clarity understand better than anybody else just mm-hmm. how unhappy they are, right? Yeah. Wow, and if yeah. that's the case, then we've started to make some progress, right? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then if we're talking about people who are physically sick or they have some sort of addiction, then why couldn't we also apply that to people who in some way we could call a kind of spiritual sickness? You right. know, If people get some kind of twisted pleasure 
out of harming others. But again, if they're not a complete sociopath, this also affects them in some way, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that might not be, even on their own account, in their own moments of clarity, that might not be a good way to live. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think that having the discussion around the terms good and evil might actually bring about a sort of baggage that is limiting the discussion? Yeah, I, I think it. I think it very well might, uh, or at least it. And it may, maybe you should use those words, but it, it presupposes certain answers to questions that are difficult. Um, is there truly free will? Can people just truly choose to do something that's evil? Mm -hmm. It's hard. It's hard to mm -hmm. say. Or that's a whole other discussion that we could have. Right. Um, I think to some extent it is helpful to start from a standard of just happiness and unhappiness or good and bad rather than good and evil because mm -hmm. whether or not the person who's addicted to drugs has done something evil it's it's a hard question but maybe we could much more easily agree that it's just bad it's bad you know? well i believe in the in the ideas of positivity and negativity you know okay. like I, I like whenever it gets to like a crux like when you have like a decision to make or you're a stimulant is put in front of you like you either choose to react in a positive or a negative way and i feel like they're like there are ranging kind of... You mean like a positive as in like I want to affect everything around this de decision in a positive way or a positive way as in like I want to feel positive about my decision? Uh, when I think about like the thought processing, it's like I'm going to take this stimulus for what it is. I'm going to process it inside and like the way that I choose to respond and handle the situation that's been put in front of me is going to be... Uh, in the thought and the idea of positivity and, and well-being for myself and for others almost. I mean, I guess that would be how I'd put positivity. But, I mean, I, I think that there are, like, there are kind of, like, little forks in the road that happen almost, like, every second of every day where it's, like, you know, if this guy cuts in front of me, I could either be, like, well, F you, man, or right. I could be, like, you know, maybe he's in a hurry. Yeah. You know, and right. it's, like... I, I feel like there is a very tangible idea, a difference between those two. And so, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily put it as like good and evil or like yeah. Yeah. righteous and evil. I right. put it in as just like good or bad. Almost. Yeah. So even just piggybacking off of the ideas of positivity and negativity, and I would be interested to hear what you guys have to th think about this. Like, I feel like we sort of, in a scientific, like the scientific community and just how we're taught, we sort of accept. Um, pretty solid laws and basis for the physical world. Yeah, you know, like thermodynamic uh, laws. Yeah, gravity, gravity and like right. they're, physics they're, in general. Yeah, yeah, there's like a lot of minute stuff that we're still figuring out, but there's Correct. a lot of things that we pretty much hold as truth now. Okay, one of those things is positivity, negativity. You know, like there mm -hmm. is a proton, and that is always positive, and there is the electron, electron and that is always negative. Do you think that that like law that we hold as truth can in any way be applied to laws of truth like morality to yeah human action i think that's a very very good and we talked about that at chipotle i remember mm -hmm. um yeah that was good old chipotle, chipotle. Good old chipotle. Yeah, that's, yeah everyone else that's is just the, like that's the usual uh, what are these guys right? <laughs> yeah. discussing got, their burrito chipotle <laughs> is just full of people talking about the laws of physics and whether they apply to morality yeah. i gotta be honest we've probably had some really given some people some interesting afternoons we've gone to random bars and gotten really heated about this and we've gone to like chipotle's and gotten heated like you can tell people are just about their day like, normal yeah, day and they're like right they're like eavesdropping looking over it's like these kids are like off their fucking rocker, <laughs> you know i was this has happened to me before i was just on the city bus talking about who knows what and this guy went before his stop came up he just came up and shook our hand and said i just wanted to tell you that that was the best conversation i've listened to all day. <laughs> 
That is amazing. You know, so this sort of stuff happens. It's <laughs> so cool. People like the deep cuts. You know? They do. I yeah. know. That's why I'm we're doing it. You know? it yeah, yeah. That's right. Serve All right. Up. So yeah, um, positivity, negativity, and human action. I think that's a really interesting like thesis and or uh, you know thing to discover or, or pursue. Yeah, right. is that notion that there might be a connection? Because yeah, I mean, we were talking about like. One of the biggest things that I, it might go into my question later. I mean, it's like, you know, we, we have time that we feel like we're experiencing. We're like yeah. almost going through time. Right. But then we also have gravity that we experience and like gravity and time have this really like interesting interaction where it's like if gravity is like increased this whole way, then time's kind of affected differently. In oh this yeah. Way. Yeah. They're and, functions of each other. Right. And it's like, those it's are two things, crazy, wait, which is crazy. And it's almost like, you know, there are all these things that are like, we just kind of take as, oh, well, there's that and there's that. But it's like they all have some sort of like connection at some point with each other. And it's like, how can we try and I don't explain know. it? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It's yeah. Kind of I mean, it's I, I don't know how helpful this is going to be. But I do think, you know, if you're going to try to make an argument, any kind of argument against moral relativism, you probably need to establish first that there is some kind of objective reality of one kind or another. Because if you see yes. that point, then I don't really think you can make a, it's, it's hard yeah. to make a claim about. And to about be completely moral. honest, that is um, the basis from which Ayn Rand like uses to argue against all that is, you know, she of course through incremental, incremental like discoveries ends up equating like relativism to believing in like a non-reality to believing right. that nothing exists because right. the very fact that we do exist means like you can't escape some sort of, you know, she goes off in these weird yeah. and isms, it, but, and then the basic idea seems to be, you know, if, if anything does in fact exist, then it seems to be the case that you can make either true or false statements about it. If yeah. it exists, then you can say something about it. And that thing you say, might be right or it might be wrong. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then, then we've started to, to agree that there's some real substance there and it's yeah. not simply a matter of, of perception. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, even to argue against myself in terms of relativism and using the model of an atom is what about the neutron, you know? What if we're the neutron? And you didn't, yeah, that's, that's almost like how I look at it. That's almost. a neutral thing. Yeah, but know? at least, you know if we're taking the neutron for granted though, at least that's a thing that we can describe, right? It is yes. neutral. It is not positive like a proton. It does not have a negative charge like an electron, but that's a statement of fact about it. And now the question is this, if somebody says that neutrons have a positive charge, are they saying something that we can look at and say, okay, that's nonsensical or is their statement equally true as somebody who says that neutrons are neutral? Yeah. So you're, I mean, basically like by the very fact that, the proton exists and has a positive charge means that to deny that would be to deny like reality, essentially like to say yeah. that, well, no, there is no proton and it's only positive because like you think it's positive or something like that. I mean, right. And you know, it look, part, part of this gets, gets very difficult when, when you start to try to move outside of, of, of a single human perception of it. So, you know, if I want to be as skeptical, if I want to push skepticism as far as it will go, then really all I have is is my own perception of things. I don't know if we what's exist. going on in your minds, yes. if that's even a thing. I'm just looking at you guys <laughs> and I'm talking and having this conversation, but all I have is what I'm thinking and seeing. That's mm -hmm. it, right? So, but but that still is something because at least in my perception there are things that I see. 
that at least appear to exist. Again, I'm using this sort of hyper-skeptical language to make a point, right? At least there are things that appear to exist, but I can make statements about those things that I can recognize as being true or false. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, at least uh, in terms of an individual, starts to move me beyond a kind of individual super-relativism, which would simply declare that, as far as I'm concerned, everything is everything, right? right there is yeah. no, there is no there's wrong, no. there's no right. I don't think any individual human being can make that claim seriously unless they're, unless they're actually confused. Because, because yeah. any thought that we have um, has to at least follow, you know, again, we talked about this in the discussion sections, something like the law of non-contradiction, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I was about to bring that up. Yeah. When I first, because... That's something that uh, got driven home in that book, but you wrote it off pretty quick. And what she says is like the very fact of non-contradiction means that relativism can't work because nothing could be the good and evil at once. Like there is no action that is both good and evil. See, I don't believe in that. I don't believe that something can't be two things at once. Can it? I mean, do, like, what, what I, like, no, would you say fine, that yeah. humans are good or bad? Like, good. like I think yeah, that I, I good. think that they're both. <laughs> I, like, I think it's like. Impossible for me to just say that like humans are good or humans are bad. Well, like, that's you know I mean I just, just to be like... really clear about what the law of non you know a real contradiction is is when we're saying uh, you know that that you know, again the example that I use yeah in class, use the one if, in class because it, it really okay you know so I was saying if you have if you have two lines that you're imagining right you've mm-hmm. got line A and line B they're both straight lines and they're parallel just mm-hmm. to make it easy okay and if I tell you to picture in your head that line A is longer than line B. Okay, no problem, right? Mm-hmm. You've got two straight parallel lines. Line A is a little bit longer than line B. Easy. Mm-hmm. Now, at the same time, without changing anything, line B is longer than line A. So now we have a problem, right? Are you telling me to imagine that line B yeah. at the same time or yeah. that line Pic- B actually is while I'm imagining that line A is No, I mean, longer? you know, pi- draw it out if you want to, you know, but picture it in your head. You know, you've got line A longer than line B, and at the same time, at the same time, line B is longer than line A. Hmm. Right. So there's a problem here. What we can do in our heads is we can sort of oscillate back and forth between these two images. I've got one line longer and now it's shorter than the other one. I can flip back and forth really quickly. Mm -hmm. I can imagine a third line that's in between the two. But one thing I cannot do is make any sense in one image in my head of line A being both longer and shorter than line B. That would be a simple contradiction in the Mm -hmm. sense that it doesn't even describe a thing that can be perceived. Yeah. It's outside of human perception. It, it doesn't even make, it's not even a thing that I'm describing anymore. It's just pure nonsense. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I am skeptical about whether that makes it really clear that therefore there's always a, a right, good decision to make. Right. And I mean, that's a, that's a bit of a jump, right? Mm-hmm. We've only made a very small movement at this yeah. point. I, like I like that it's interesting because I agree with you, but it's interesting that that's what like, that's like the foundation for her. And yeah. but here we are like being kind of skeptical about it, you know, and yeah. I guess sort of what that means for how we think of it. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, this all, a lot of this comes from, from Aristotle, or at least he's one who made it explicit, right? He had these, these laws of, of thought uh, the law of, of non-contradiction, the law of identity, and the law of excluded middle. But basically, the idea was you have these basics that every human being uh, simply cannot help but abide by. It's not a matter of choice. It's just that when any human being forms a thought, it has to follow these rules. 
because as soon as you allow contradiction, then it's not even a thought to speak mm-hmm. of, right? Mm-hmm. And Aristotle, uh, you know, for him, he tried to make the argument that the, these aren't simply uh, laws about our perception, but I, I think, at least if, if my understanding is adequate, he tried to make the argument that these are, in fact, uh, rules about being itself, because then, you know, that's sort of the movement we have to make if we want to step out of our mere perception of things into saying that that's actually how things are. Correct, yes. Right? That's tough. Uh, and, it, and it's hard to make the, you know, to, to put it in sort of jargon, we're moving from um, epistemology to ontology. We're mm-hmm. moving from the way we perceive things to the way things actually are. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. even if we don't do that, that is just to stick for a moment at the level of perception, you know, um, I think it's worthwhile to, to just reiterate this point. I think there are a lot of people who, because these moral questions are difficult, you know, because they're hard and they make their head hurt, you know, mm-hmm. they just retreat too easily to a kind of personal relativism. That is, they're not even making any broader claim. They're just saying, look, my actions don't have that kind of significance. You know, who's even to say whether this is, this is good or bad for me? Well, and I would just say you are, exactly. you know, and, and if you're really honest and clear about it, you would realize that you yourself have standards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what makes you happy, what makes you healthy, what makes you feel bad. And, and from there, you can generate quite a remarkable uh, sort of criteria for how one ought to live life. Mm-hmm. Totally. And even with like Kant, he, he, he was basically just like, <laughs> once you figure out what works good for you, if you can imagine it working good for everybody and still yeah. creating a livable world, then right. that's the code. You yeah. Know? And, but, and it's, it's remarkable, you know, in these, these platonic dialogues, right? You've got mm-hmm. the character Socrates going around speaking to people. I mean, he's not, uh, you know, he's not making mathematical proofs, uh, usually anyway, you know, he's not, um, running scientific experiments to try to prove his point. He's not pointing at evidence like that. He is just talking to people and getting them to realize that they themselves have beliefs. And he's trying to get them to be more clear and honest with themselves about what those beliefs are. And it's remarkable how far people move when they do that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. when pushed, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I have a a question, and I think it might segue nicely kind of from where we're at, because I think a lot of the discussion that we've had is from the viewpoint of humanity. And I think that one thing that's always kind of been hard for me to discount while um, Chase kind of of finds what I'm thinking to be a little bit irrelevant, I guess, is um, the thought that there are could be truths beyond humanity's understanding. You know, like yeah. we might have things that are good for humans, and even if we make like moral, like ma- imagine making a, a moral world where everybody's standards were on par with each other here, even yeah, as like, hard as that like is a to utopia, believe. Basically. Yeah, like yeah. like there are things that are that will be inherently good for humans because like as animals that still have instinct and still like yearn for survival like there are certain universe universal things there but then like whenever i think about you know something outside of humanity like if there was like an alien invasion that were to attack yeah like if if they were to just wreak havoc on humanity like clearly from our point of view that would be you know despicable but then like that wouldn't be any different from what we do to animals on earth and it's almost like if we're going to talk about true universal truths and true universal like absolutes and stuff, like I wouldn't want to have my sense of principles discount or negate the thought that maybe there are truths outside of humanity even that like our scope can't even take into account. 
sure. but, which is like it's kind of a cop out because it's like saying I want to understand what I don't understand as a human, basically. But at the same yeah. time, like I think that's a thing to you know at least wonder about. So my yeah. idea would be like, do you think that there are certain limitations just because we are humans and we can't think outside of of human existence and human like what is good for humans and what is right for humans? Like maybe there's something that might be good and right, but it's not necessarily like just for humans basically you know what i mean it's just for me at that point you could pretty much just start doing whatever you want and saying you're doing it for the good of whatever you're perceiving to be above human you know exactly which is kind of like because i think that like what we're making a lot of our like uh you know theories and understandings on is that like human is kind of like the pinnacle of understanding and morality whereas like i mean it's the only thing we know yeah but, uh, but I, I guess I'm just, like, including that maybe it's not. <laughs> maybe there well, are... Well, I mean, I mean, one very common way in which, you know, humanity throughout history has uh, pointed to something that might be beyond is, is of course, through the divine, right? Mm-hmm. And there is... I mean, not to, not to sort of change the subject, but I really think this is just an example, right? Yes. There's common claims made that there is this kind of transcendent, mysterious deity who has certain expectations and commands... And we're not always going to understand them. So isn't that sort of one example of yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. that would be yes, sort right. of like an idea that like there's understandings outside of our own. Right, and, and it's, it's not uncommon to hear a religious person say, I don't fully grasp the goodness of this, but I'm doing it because it's been ordered. You know? And see, that's sort of what it like boils down to me. I mean, just look, look at anything that is like unwanted... Um, that is happening here on earth at like for the reason of something that they claim can't be understood. You know, for me, it's just like, why would you like put all of your bets on something that you can't understand and like, just hope that it's, well, it's not putting my bets on something. It's, it's basically like, you know, I think it kind of drives at the question that can we be in a reality or have existence and still be objective about it. Like, it's like if I'm in a classroom, right, I'm noting on what this person's doing, I know what that person's doing, I'm knowing what the teacher and the TAs are doing and how, how they're, you know, presenting the information to me. Can I be objective about that? And I would argue no, that unless you're not in the class, you can't be objective about the class almost. You know what I mean? It's like, it's impossible to separate yourself from your thoughts and your uh, understandings of the stimulate stimulants that are coming into your yeah your I mean and, and this is uh you know this is basically something like what's at the heart of this this movement or, or you know a sort of school of thought I don't know what you would call it in philosophy called phenomenology and mm-hmm. and one of the one of the guys who, who really sort of started this or at least is a key figure is is Edmund Husserl and Husserl's basic idea is is something like this which is it doesn't make sense to make these ontological statements, that is, statements about reality as it is, about being, you know, uh-huh. without recognizing that all we really have access to is our perception of it. Yes. You know, we are really bound by that perception. Mm-hmm. And so according to Husserl, I can say things about my perception of things, but if I start to try to move beyond that to say the way things really are independent of my mind, which perceives them, that becomes difficult. I think difficult. that's it. I think yeah. that is my thing. I, <laughs> well yeah. put. And I definitely see like the challenges of that for sure. But 
in like how you started out the question by saying like let's let's presuppose that like Earth is a utopia now and mm-hmm. we've like we've figured it out. Yes. Are you are you basically wondering like in the grand scheme like of I guess the universe is what we think is good and everyone is happy and seeking and like finding happiness can that like ultimately like be bad for the universe? It's not or? whether or not it's bad. It's just like you know are there things that are like particular to humans. Like, you know, are there certain codes for, you know, bats and f- trees and, you know, like they, that they have things that are like ideal for any sort of existence that's not our own. And then we have our own existence that yeah. like has its ideals. And I, stuff. I think one thing that we, we might have to just face up to is the, is the very real prospect that there is not a common good across species. You know, and by that I mean, I mean again, you brought up the way that human beings treat animals, right? It might unfortunately be the case that I mean, let, let's let's even make this more stark and easy by thinking about uh, mankind in in its sort of more primitive condition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time when uh, you know we didn't have uh, options to sort of uh, avoid slaughtering animals. You know, you had to do it to eat. You needed nutrition. They mm-hmm. were a source of protein and certain things that you needed. So human beings killed animals. You know, mm-hmm. that's how. It's not good for them. At least it's not right. in any way that we can yeah. comprehend. Right? If, you're, if you're one of those animals, presumably uh, one of the things that you're <laughs> aiming at by instinct is to survive, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, quite clearly, uh, in, in that example anyway, the good of one species really depends on the just destruction. Not not complete destruction, but um, the destruction of individual members of the other species. The exchange, really, yeah. between species. Right, right. And, and now that... That might simply be the case that that you know, and you you brought up the example of aliens who who would come here and and fight and and treat us no differently than the way that we we treat uh, animals. Um, at you know, at, now that that's not quite full relativism or anything like that. We're just at that point, we would just have to say that what's good for us and what's good for them are in conflict, and there might not be any one situation that okay. would be good for everybody. I see what right? You're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That so again, between us and animals, maybe there's not a common good. Now there might be. I mean, maybe we could have uh, perfectly acceptable meat substitutes in the future, and there would just be no need to treat animals in the way they do in factory farms and stuff like yeah. that. And in fact, I think that's one of the claims that the vegetarians would make, vegetarians and vegans, um, mm-hmm. that we're already sort of getting there. But uh, you know, regardless, if you have, uh, you know, uh, let, let's even sort of take the same example and break it down. If you've got two people stranded on an island, they know they're going to be rescued in two days, but there's only enough food for one person, right? They could choose to try to split it, but let's assume for whatever reason we know they're both going to starve to death. Yes. Okay, there's no there's no common good, it would seem. Yeah. They both just have to do what they can to survive, so they have very conflicting goods. That doesn't mean that we're being relativistic here. It just means that we're in a tragic circumstance. Yeah, right. sure. but is there a is there like an absolute solution to something like that, or is there like the right way that that should be handled? Because like that's almost like it almost like negates your sense of principles and all these all these all these understandings that you've made, and it's like yeah. well, it's back down to the base. It's back yeah. down to square one. And I and I think you know as long as we as long as we don't think that an absolute principle is always going to be a rosy picture. Yeah, you know. I think for me, it's in that situation, especially it's more of like, no matter what you do, as long as you like, as long as guilt doesn't come into into play there. And I don't think it it could come into play in either scenario, you know? 
You you do or don't think it could? I come? don't think it could because like I, I could. You could you could, could totally s- you could act. You could say like and going off of a code of where like with Kant where everyone is uh, in 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 and of themselves. I'm gonna eat. I'm gonna kill you. Yeah. So I can survive. Right. Where survival is my ultimate good, but I've treated you as a means, which is a bad thing. Or you could look at the other way and say I'm gonna let. I'm not gonna kill you, and if I end up dying because of it. Um, I didn't treat you as a means, but now I'm dead. And so, like, I feel like either way, you could feel guilty. You can have made the wrong choice, and mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the sort of examples that we're pointing to now are just these, uh, you know, unfortunate circumstances where where we're choosing between two situations that seem both rather bad. You know, mm-hmm. one is that I or my species or something will be dead. The other is that we have to commit something that some sort of Something that seems like a crime in a way, you know, it's not what we want to do. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But again, you know, it might be the case that that sort of underpinning all of our 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 moral reality are are these very hard decisions that we ultimately have to make. I mean, who are we looking out for at the end? You know, do I have a, a right to look after my survival? You know, if so, then it's not wrong to to do what you have to do in those circumstances. But it doesn't mean it wouldn't feel bad, but again, it might just be, you know, I think, I think the one thing that we, you know, we shouldn't allow this to be a point in favor of relativism because I don't think it is, but just the fact that sometimes we're faced with hard decisions or just the fact that we are as human beings, we're in a situation where we have to choose between several options that seem bad that in itself does not mean that therefore there's no right answer. Mm-hmm. It just means that the right answer is less it's good than we hope. Less yeah. good, yeah. yeah. So, like, is there any conclusions that you think you've, like, made with, with your original question of, like, there being an alien race out there? Hmm. I mean, or even just a perspective... Highly hypothetical, by the way. I mean. A perspective beyond humanity, like... What is what does that mean? Like, what does that imply? Like, what are the implications of that? Well, I mean, I'm someone who I feel like I've done my best. Uh, I probably, you know, I'll have stints where I try and push the envelope again, but I've done my best to conceptualize like the the size and just the vastness of the universe. And with that, I basically was like, "There's no way that we're the only existence that 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 is." And so, you know, when I take that into consideration and whenever I look at, like, what that would mean for me, it basically just puts me back, like, in my understanding that, like, we have, you know, Earth and, like, uh, like we have these systems that are put in place. Like, society is, like, an interhuman sort of, like, uh, relationship and like there's this it's almost like an impossible for me to separate myself from society or from the things that influence me to get where I am today so we keep talking about like the idea of the mind and like how the mind should be able to make this decision versus this decision and it's like if you told me to like you know what would I be like in a in, in a situation where I'm not surrounded by people it's like then I wouldn't be who I am I wouldn't be who I am right now you know, like I would be, my reality would be so far different from, from what I have today that it's like impossible for me to even, or it's not even worth it for me to try and understand what that would be like. And so that gets me to the idea that maybe like 
all of the understandings and the perceptions that I have are basically based off of everything that's influencing me, all the stimulants that are coming in, and all like my understanding and judgments on that. And that is just kind of within itself. Like that's earth. Everyone's doing that right now. Everyone's trying to understand that, right? And yeah. like we're doing our best to understand that as, as best as possible. But then there are, there might be other existences where they're doing the same thing over there. So it's like, is there a commonality between the two? And like, I think that was, it was really good that you noted that like, there might not be cross species, absolute good actions, you know, that, that, right. that, one hundred percent encompasses the best thing that can happen for everyone. Right, right. And I think that that was like one of the biggest things that was hard hard for me to get over is like, well, you know, we have all these ideas of like there there should be like goods and bads or truths. Like killing is bad and this is bad and this is bad. But like in these situations, like I'm not seeing how how it can be considered bad or good if right. it's just a if it's just a decision that you have to make at the end of the day. Yeah. Almost like right. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, you know. Uh, it's it's a it's a tough thing to face up to, but I but I think it as far as I can tell, it's it's simply something that that is true, which is that sometimes uh, we don't have the option of doing what fulfills every living being. You know, it's it's just that's just sort of a, a sad fact about the world that we're in. Mm-hmm. We have to you know our, our needs our needs do conflict with one another, even human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and there's always this sort of separation you know, not just between us and the animals, but between, you know, us and other human beings, even the ones that we're close to. I mean, when you really think through the implications, it, it does get kind of dark, you know? I think mm-hmm. about, you know, your your loved ones and your friends and family. There is a point, I think, at which your good gets so wrapped up in, a, in another person's good, just to bring this kind of back to what you were saying about love, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there, is a, there is a point at which there can be a kind of common good when you convince yourself that you care for that other person's happiness, independently of what it does to you, you just mm-hmm. care that much about them. Yes. Um, but but that's that is a rare kind of emotion that we feel, you know. And for the most part, I think we have to recognize that there's always some separation between us and other beings, because at the end of the day, what's good for me might not be, you know, the circumstance that ends up making me happy might not be the circumstance that, that makes, that makes you, happy. you happy. And that's something we have to work through, yeah. you know. Well, Ahmed, did you have a question you want to ask, or? Yeah, do what? Do we have time? I, I can throw something yeah, on the table, have, you know. We, about we usually like, go about like an hour and a half, and we're about an hour in. So. Okay. Well, yeah, I've I've got something. You know, this is this has sort of been this is sort of uh, appropriate given what we were saying before about survival of being an end, and and whether there are circumstances under which that might not be the most important thing, but. Even putting aside moral questions and how we deal with other people, I'm just wondering, from your individual point of view concerning your own happiness only, would you really want to live forever if you could? Hmm. So be immortal, basically. Yeah. Hmm. Is is that you know is that just the greatest good that you could ever have? I mean, that's tough. Like, do you age? So let's let's <laughs> since I'm gonna take uh, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna probably be arguing against immortality. I want to make the case for it as strong as I can. So okay. let's say you stay whatever age you want. Let's say that the people you love stay the age that you want them at, and you don't have to watch them die. Okay. Um, so I can probably still die from like. 
yeah, being, circumstance. Yeah, being axed in the head. Yeah, yeah, you can still die. Let's say, uh, no, no, I actually, I think in <laughs> really, order to no. make this, yeah, okay. I, I, think, I think in order to make this, a, because, because then if, if you could. Survival if, still exists, like. Yeah, yeah. and also the, the other problem is, of course you would choose to be immortal if you could die at any time when you wanted to, because that takes out the choice, right? Okay. You know? okay. Yeah. So I'm saying if we really got to make a commitment here. If you choose to be immortal, then you cannot die. Ooh, man, that's rough. You can <laughs> never die. Again, you're not going to, and you know, let's say you're never going to be in such pain that you would want to die either. So I'm, I'm throwing that out. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you're making it as, I make, as I'm, rosy as possible. I'm making it rosy, and I want to <laughs> see if, if there's any reason why you might not, or uh, if that just sounds great. I mean, like, just knee-jerk reaction is, yeah, yeah. is yes, okay. but then knee-jerk reaction after all those stipulations that, like, I wouldn't be able to die... See, my knee-jerk reaction is no. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's like, interesting. Then no kind of comes up as well, because, like... But why, why Why is that? Why, why would you... Because what you're saying is is you would want to die at some point. Yeah, which is well, what strange. what is that? Like, <laughs> well, I don't think it's that you want to die. I think it's accepting that your reality isn't the best possible reality. Like, I think a lot of people... What I think, you know, it's kind of, sometimes it's a cop-out for a lot of people, but I think a lot, a lot of the reason why people believe in religion and, and, and believe in like deities and stuff is the idea Fear that, of death. That, that, well, it's the idea that like, well, this earth has problems and this earth has, or this, or this existence that we're in, this universe that we're in, like there are conflicts of interest, you yeah, know, between I, species. I think you've really hit something I, on the head here. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's like, it's like there should be an existence where that doesn't exist. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm just thinking, like, if I was in my own head for, like, 500 years. That's the question, yeah. I would even want that. Because, like, there are times when I'm in my room where I'm just like, can I not think for a while? Damn it. Like, mm-hmm. can I just go play, a, like, a game or yeah. something? Like, can I, I escape myself? That's, I, I mean, this. the reason I ask this question is not just for some fanciful, you know, hey, would we want to be immortal? If <laughs> but because I think it really makes you think about a certain part of the human condition that we were, we were likely to look over, you know, yeah. otherwise. And, and it's exactly what you're talking about. Um, and it's almost too weak to call it boredom. You know, um, there's a, a, a French term that they, that philosophers sometimes use. They talk about ennui, you know, uh-huh. and ennui is this kind of existential boredom or even angst. It kind of, yeah. it kind of mixes Tension the two together, almost. you know, and, and there's something strange about the fact that, when you are alone in those moments of quiet reflection, I mean, sometimes you just want to kind of attach yourself to something else. You want to reach out and be more than just because you realize how alone and isolated you are in your mind, Mm -hmm. you know? And if you really thought about taking that and just stretching it and and knowing that that would never end, yeah. You know, every single day, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, 5,000 years is not even a long time because it's meaningless. We're talking about an infinity, you know, yeah. it's not even a fraction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like that, that really reminds me, uh, have you, do you ever watch anime hardly ever? Uh, I've seen a little bit, but the, I, I'm, there's you know. this one show that I recently got into chase, watched a little bit of it called death note. And there are these, I am um, somewhat familiar with the premise at least. Yeah. And there's like, there basically there's this one like God of death kind of yeah. that follows him around, but there's multiple, and in the show, they have, like, basically, they'll, like, write when a person will die. And so right. if they were supposed to die at, like, 60, they'll write 40, and they'll get 20 years added onto their life. Oh, I So see. they've been around for, like, as long as they can remember, and they're starting to, like, be like, we don't even know why we exist anymore. Right. <laughs> you know? They're like, they're like, why do we keep writing names, but, like, we keep doing it. And right. so it's like, 
that kind of that kind of yeah i think that would be very on we where it's like yeah. uh so do we keep doing it yeah or, you know that, like, and even this idea honestly comes in a conflict with like egoism especially it does, yeah because with egoism you're supposed to be like you don't do things for other people's uh praise like you do them for yourself and you should uh, yeah. you should be happy with yourself forever and always but thinking about it this way like no fucking way man it's like, like by yourself sucks exactly yeah. like you can't deny like that need for I mean, I guess if if your your family's immortal too, they're gonna be immortal with you. Yeah. I think you'd even get bored of them. I yeah. think you would. You know, like oh, yeah. real quick. I can't if I had to hang like I love you, mom, but if we had to <laughs> if we had to sit in a room together for well, eternity. Let's, let, let's I mean, try to Jesus. make it let's try to make it easier then. What you know, you get a continually re- replenishing supply of people that you can meet that are new. It's always new, it's that always are forever fresh. new and interesting. I mean Well, well, no, I mean, I'm not guaranteeing that they're interesting <laughs> because that's the question, right? They're only new people, but wouldn't you wouldn't you maybe just You have run gone out through of, all of I mean, the DNA I, I, possibilities? I mean, let me let me tell you, I've met I mean, how many people do we meet in the course of a twenty five year life so far? I mean, you know, you meet a lot of people, right? Thousands and thousands. Nobody I think I've seen most, I've seen it all, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. There are small variations, but for the most part, yeah. yeah. I mean, we got it nailed down. Plus, is it not, I mean, what is it? Uh, there's even a Queens of the Stone Age lyric. That's, mm. I want something good to die for to make it beautiful to live. Yeah, that's right. Where, like, literally, the fact that you are on a timeline is what is making everything so meaningful. That's, yeah, that's what makes it beautiful. Yeah. That's exactly it. You know, I mean, isn't isn't part of the, yeah, is, isn't part of the the thing that makes life worth living the fact that it is gonna be over at some point. Uh-huh. It's it's hard to conceive. I mean, I, I'll be the first to admit, whenever I try to think what it would be like to know that you were immortal, right? Because it is mortality is just such a fact of human existence. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very hard to conceive of, but as far as I can figure it out, that would not be a better alternative. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the very instant that you were immortal, just the loneliness that would happen, yeah, like, pretty much right then and there. Like to like be separated from mortality, yeah, is like uh, that's a crazy concept. So so what that means, you know, I and mean, this is to sort of end on a positive note, right? What that means <laughs> is that, I mean, you know, it might be the case that human life is, is tragically short. You know, we, we might reach the end of our lives and look back and it was just like a blink, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's a common experience that people talk about. And, and, you know, we might wish that it were much longer than, than it in fact is, but it might be the case that mortality is, is actually the damn part. good thing, yeah. you know? And, mm-hmm. and if, and if that's the case, then you just have to enjoy what you're given as much as you can. I think that's a great lesson to like draw from that, you know, to take something negative and like basically put it in the most positive way. Yeah. And I even like like drew on that sort of a little bit with like the need for mortality, even when we were talking about like animals Yeah, and how like if there wasn't some sort of like existence where the, um, what was best for each race or what was best for each species yeah. didn't conflict. Right. Then there would just be population, like there would just be infinite amount of everything. Like there would yeah. just be an unlimited number of pigs that continued to keep, you know, populating because we had as much food as we wanted or whatever. And it's like, at some point, like what makes everything work is the fact that there's death. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, one thing that I was kind of thinking about that would kind of put a weird little interesting. Uh, twinge on the thought of morta- of mortality would the be the idea of immortality and the ability to be able to like teleport. I think like yeah. see the universe exactly how you wanted to see right. it. Right. 
And I think that would change my answer. Well, I, 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 I say throw that in there. I say, in fact, throw in any superpower you want, except the ability to forget, you know, mm-hmm. that, that you have been existing forever. And accept okay. your foresight of the fact that you are going to continue to exist forever. Other than that, I say give yourself any superpower you right. want. And as mm. far as I can tell, my answer doesn't change. Yeah, that's wow. That's crazy. That's pretty I mean, wild. I feel like, I mean, I, I can tell that I'm going to continue mind munching on this one past the show because I've never had the question even posed. But that's definitely an interesting one. Like, in your stint of like studying philosophy, have you just kind of come across these questions on your own? Like, how do these like how do you start thinking about these kind of things? Because I feel like most of the situations and things I think about are ones that have been gone through quite often and they're like sort of the basis for philosophical philosophical thoughts. So like, what's it like kind of being wrapped up in that always, but still finding like new, I guess, things to think about in a way. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I, if I had to make the decision right now to study philosophy or not, I would absolutely choose to do it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I feel, I feel good about what I, what I chose and, and it's, it is a good feeling, you know, to be able to continually, uh, to, to come to these ideas and questions. And, uh, you know, I, I think the, the way to describe it, the feeling, it's not so much that you've discovered something entirely alien and new, but you just realize that this question, even if you've never heard it before, sheds light on something that you did care about already, you know, and yeah. you're, you're only just achieving better clarity about it. Um, yeah, it's like latent understanding. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, and so, yeah, you, uh, a lot of this, a lot of this does come from, you know, books and, and things that I've read, which really speak to, uh, I think that the human condition and what it's like and what really matters to us. And a lot of it's just also from, from living and talking, you know, I mean, yeah. you, you can never forget that. I mean, there are people who will never read, uh, anything like a philosophy book, but they're going to be very deep thinkers just because of the experiences that they've had and the people that they've spoken to, you know, I would right. probably say that's how I am. Cause I don't yeah. read philosophy anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that was a fantastic episode of Deep Cuts. I think that was really, really Ahmed, good. Ahmed, thank you for coming in I being had on the show. I had a great time. Thank yeah, you. We should maybe do another one of these at some point. I'm down. After we take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess we'll go ahead and start plugging away. Man, I, I used to, like, enjoy doing the plugs because there's, like, kind of a lot of them, and I finally got good yeah. at saying them all. Now I'm right. just sick of saying them. Well, I will enjoy listening to you <laughs> say the plugs. At least someone is. Yeah, okay, you so you're listening to Witty Banter. We're on iTunes. You can just go to iTunes, search Witty Banter, hit subscribe, and every week we will pop up in your download queue for free. It's like a little drip feed. And then uh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Podcast. Go hit like to keep up with all the news. The uh, episodes also post to our website, wittybantershow.com. So if you don't have iTunes, uh, you can still download the file. Follow us on Witty Banter or on Twitter. We're at Witty Banter Show. Hunter's at Diesel Dorset. I'm at Bodacious Chase. Do you have a Twitter on that? I do not. Okay, you're a better man for it. Yes, um, I agree. I think that's everything. Is there anything else that we want to say? As Life far as plug goes, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's for, go with that. I want to extend a sincere thank you for being on the show, Ahmed. It was excellent. Yeah, that was awesome. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. That was that was a blast. Yeah, we really enjoyed it. So uh, until next time, this has been Witty Banter, and we'll see you next week, guys. Beep beep. Beep beep. <laughs> <laughs>